One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. Our social reality cannot be debugged or rebooted, it can only be lived better and more consciously from this point forward. It's time to achieve coherence together right now. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, CEO of the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, serial collaborator, Deborah Kulinan. And so if we don't think that art and creativity and imagination are essential, I think it's a huge problem. I think what we have to do, though, is, is think of those things not as isolated, marginalized, and or for the few, I think we have to think of art and creativity and imagination as part of a system. Deborah will be showing us how to make art with a community instead of just for it. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. We've got a lot of show today, but first I want to make sure you know this one big thing. Team Human, the book, the manifesto, the one I just wrote, is being serialized in its entirety on Medium over the next 100 weeks. This was actually by design. The book is 100 short theses on the value of humans, how we came to see one another and every living thing as resources to colonize and control, and how the digital opportunity to reverse that trend was squandered and instead used to program humans even further into submission and most important, I guess, how we can still retrieve the human, regenerative, cooperative values we've lost and bring on an era of distributed prosperity and flourishing. And I wrote it this way in a hundred little pieces so that people could easily grab and share the sections that are of particular value to them with the physical book being more this kind of artifact or handbook. And I'm still hoping Norton releases a truly pocket-sized paperback of the book for this purpose. It's really short enough for that. But in the meantime, they've graciously agreed to let us post the whole damn book, a section at a time, in a special new stream on Medium called Team Human. 
at medium.com slash team dash human. That's medium.com slash team dash human. That's also the page where we'll post written columns based on my monologues and an archive of all of our episodes. Listeners email me every day asking, what can they do to be on Team Human? And usually I say they should subscribe and support the show if they can. But this is even more important. Really, the way to participate, to start on Team Human, is to read these theses and to share the ones that mean the most to you with your friends and relevant communities. So there's a section where I talk about the reversal of figure and ground in education and how education was started really as compensation for workers going in the mines all day. I've talked about this before. So they'd be able to come home at night and read a book and appreciate it and experience the dignity of having some intelligence. And now education's reversed. It's become an extension of the workplace. It's seen as a way to train for your job or to train to even get a job. And that's a section that I would think then teachers would read that and think, ah, this is team human applied to what we do. And that would be six or 700 words that they would easily want to link to or pass on in an email or post in, uh, in their user groups and their bulletin boards. So please come and read this book in easy, bite-sized, five-minute sections once a week for the next year or so. It's at medium.com slash team human. And we'll have a link at teamhuman.fm as well. Meanwhile, yes, Team Human sells nothing but love, but love doesn't pay for ad space. Thanks to our contributing subscribers, Bruce Dixon, Joel Saslovsky, Kerry Smith, Laurie Finney, Martin O'Grady, who keep our producer and editor alive. You can support Team Human and get neat stuff like a membership card, digital copies of my books, and access to Team Human live events by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support, or go to patreon.com slash teamhuman. And one of those events, one of those events that you get access to by being a subscriber is coming up in December at the Public Theater at their space called Joe's Pub. Reverend Billy and the Church of Stop Shopping has decided to canonize Team Human. That's right, we are achieving sainthood. So any subscribing member of Team Human is invited to Joe's Pub in New York City on December 15th at 2 p.m., to both see and be part of the show and receive your sainthood live and in person for free. Just email team at teamhuman.fm or visit the website teamhuman.fm for details. That's Reverend Billy at Church of Stop Shopping at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater on December 15th at 2 p.m. The whole run, actually, of Reverend Billy and the Church of Stop Shopping starts in just a week. Who is Reverend Billy, you ask? He's a climate activist, cultural provocateur, a minister for the earth. Maybe maybe I should just introduce him to you.
first they should know who is Reverend Billy and what's the church of stop shopping? The short answer is we're an urban earth church. We're trying to, in the center of New York City, which is not known for its environmentalism, we're trying to have the earth in us. The sky above us is often the only earth we've got visually. What we've got visually is is our own bodies. We're made of the earth. And to, you know, make that vivid, to remind ourselves of this, the, the, the sensual presence that we have right there, and then gather three or 400 people in a protest at the front door of a place that's killing the earth, there you got it. The earth culture confronting the earth killer. So now New York is privileged enough to have the opportunity to experience live at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. Is that true? November 24th is our opening Sunday. It's at 2 p.m. And uh, RevBilly at RevBilly.com is us. And Joe'sPub.org is our host. A place where we gather to plan our activism against Chase and BlackRock. So we want to shake ourselves free of it. And I think that shaking is, I think that dancing, being physical in public space is the kind of thing that the choir and I do a lot. And yesterday morning, we did it at Black Rock on 51st and Park, just getting lots and lots of people to to shake their asses in the face of this iconic monument of gray metal with black rock across it in Helvetica. It's it's like it's <laughs> a, a perfect B movie evil place, you know. Who's the man who cast a pole on the big band shopping mall? Who will stop you when you suck from a Starbucks coffee cup? He will stop you. He will shock you. He will test you. He will bless Children, give up all your sin, cause he's our reverend, Reverend Billy. That was Reverend Billy of the Church of Stop Shopping. Team Human supporters can see Reverend Billy and the choir on December 15th at Joe's Pub for free and get sainted in the process. Email team at teamhuman.fm for your free Tickets if you're a subscriber, or just go to the uh, Public Theater's website or revbilly.com to get regular tickets if you're not. We'll also be doing a Team Human Live with Reverend Billy on March 5th at WNYC's Green Space. More on that next year. And now, it's time for a special feature we do now called Real People Doing Real Things. Real people doing real things. Real There's many people all over the world doing things about things, making websites about other people doing things, writing blogs about things, aggregating the people who are writing about things, but so few people are actually doing things. So we at Team Human have been traveling the world in search of those few precious souls who are doing actual things, sometimes even with their hands. And we found two such people, New York Assemblyman Ron Kim and Cornell Law Professor Robert Hockett. They are creating a new public 
money that's starting for New York's poor and hopefully extending to everyone. I spoke to them last week. You've seen that the economic problems that we're facing are not necessarily a lack of skills or a lack of needs, a lack of the basic requirements for a functioning economy, but all that people lack are a means of exchange so for them to exchange value. So you came up with a almost seemingly sarcastic, sarcastically simple um, solution for this problem. And I, I'll leave it to you to describe how uh, dynamic inclusive money works. I went to Professor Hockett to ask him, is there a way to create uh, a complementary or a community currency type um, that lifts up the caring economy? And what do you know? You know, Bob Hawkins has been working on a massive blueprint to do this at the community, state, and, and federal level. And there's a big white paper, but it's really a blueprint, a business plan for this country uh, to make money work again so we can capture people's values at the very local level who have been neglected for all these years. And that's the real vision and goal of what we're trying to accomplish here. We're very much inspired by you, Doug. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the, the American economist I was most inspired by in my, you know, sort of cutting my teeth was Irving Fisher, who you might know is well associated with the idea of a velocity of money, right? So the idea of a circulation economy is very much in keeping with the sort of Irving Fisher view of a macro economy. And in that sense, kind of, you know, way ahead, ironically enough, of the thinking of many orthodox economists today, who I think are kind of behind uh, where Fisher was 80 to 100 years ago. But in any event, as Ron was saying, um, and as you were saying, there's plenty of value stored up or stopped up, you might even say, in our economy. Um, the problem is that it can't circulate unless it has a means of expression. And of course, the means of expression for value in an exchange economy like ours is monetary, right? You need some kind of money or some kind of currency that can circulate in order for money, I'm sorry, in order for value to be able to circulate. And so Ron and I kind of put our heads together and we thought, you know, we can put together a very simple frame of very simple platform that essentially enables money or currency or value to you know circulate quite freely and that would free it up and that enables of course the creation of more and more or the generation of more and more wealth and human value so then what do we get is basically like a little pocket let's system or time dollars or yeah, Ron is a terrific way of putting it. Ron suggests that we think of it as a kind of a public Venmo, and that's sort of what it is, right? It's a payment platform, but it also, it enables, it basically everything becomes fungible on the platform. So if you receive, say, tax credits from the state of New York, or if you receive a, a benefit check from the Social Security office or from some New York office, you don't have to go to some check cashing service that charges you like a 50% premium or is basically extracting from you in order to, you know, kind of unleash the value that's kind of pent up in that check. Instead, it's directly credited to the account, and then you can make payments to other people through their accounts. And basically, there's just a simultaneous debiting of the account of a payor and crediting of the account of a payee. And everybody can have a wallet like this that's basically device accessible. We have about $55 billion of tax returns, uh, social benefits, Medicaid, all sorts of credits that's due to us. And most of the time, you know, we wait until the end of the year, we do the filings, we do the tax, and then we get the credits and cash, and then we go online and spend it on Amazon or whatever, and it's gone. It's extracted out of our economy. What we're, what we're accomplishing, at minimum, is if we ever to transfer that money through this uh, public debit credit system, we, we were able to keep it circulating locally. But if we're able to actually make it usable early on before they actually get into a liquid cash, 
people can actually multiply the value of the credit over and over and over before it becomes real cash, before they cash it in. Um, and, and I think that's the beauty of what Bob has, you know, envisioned. And the other, the other thing, Doug, that sort of complementing what Ron just said is, you know, once you have that infrastructure in place, then it's very simple uh, for the state itself to credit people's digital wallets, say, for various kinds of care work that they might not currently be credited for at all, right? If we decided as a society or as a state or as a city in New York City that we want to credit people for that kind of work, it can be done immediately by crediting their digital wallets. So you've sort of taken care of the problem of the unbanked by having everybody assigned a digital wallet. And then once you're taking care of that problem, everybody can receive value in those wallets and transfer value back and forth between one another via those wallets. And with that infrastructure in place, it's now possible basically to channel much more value from the state to individuals, from individuals to the state, and of course, among individuals themselves. And in theory, so if it starts out, you know, someone like me, let's say I get a Cuomo created house credit because of what happened with property taxes. So let's say there's like $800 that's going to come to me this year and we know it in the system. So now in my little IVL wallet on my iPhone or on my Fairphone, say my Android Fairphone, I see, oh, there's the $800 got there early. It's there. And now I can spend it in my neighborhood on music lessons for my daughter because I couldn't afford music lessons for her, but now I can. And now I spend all the money, but I'm like, but that was kind of cool. Is the idea now that we've uh, grounded a new behavior and now I can transfer some of my other money in there and start using it in this local way? That's right. Yeah. It is it's the first of its kind, a public owned payment architecture, we can put whatever incentives to push people to actually award or reward care work. So for example, if you go spend uh, $100 of that credit uh, toward a, a nurse or, or, or some sort of a care work at home or a babysitter or whatever, we could actually put 10 cents more credit toward it. So every time you use it, we can design it in a way to incentivize people to be to be engaged in the care economy. Right. Or, I mean, it was what I was arguing to the credit unions when I did a talk for them. If you buy things from people in the network, then you should get a better borrowing rate or a better rate of exchange than if you're buying from people who are out of the network. So you just incentivize using it more, you know, just to get that sort of Dyson effect of the of that circular economic activity. Once it reaches a kind of a critical mass, then it kind of takes on a certain uh, uh, a momentum of its own. You know, we call ourselves an exchange economy, right? Supposedly, our economy is predicated on the exchange of value with one another. And we also kind of call ourselves a commercial society sometimes. Well, you would think that in an exchange economy or in a commercial society, if there's any kind of infrastructure that would be public, that would be immediately available to everybody universally, it would be a commercial infrastructure or a payments architecture, right? But ironically, we currently do that through these private parties these private entities, whether they be banks with transaction accounts or whether they be PayPal or Venmo, which is, I guess, owned by PayPal. I mean, it's kind of crazy uh, to have, in effect, you know, we don't have like private police forces and we don't have our roads provided by private entities. So why should the highway of money, so to speak, why should the money circulatory system be in private hands either with all of this rent that they extract from us when we use those things? That's an essential infrastructure if we're going to pride ourselves on being an exchange economy or 
or a commercial society or what have you. They're putting drag on the system because they're gaming the system by financializing every one of our transactions. And that's friction, right? That that actually stands in the way of circulation. And, you know, in, in, a, in a blood circulatory system, we call that atherosclerosis, right? We, we consider that quite unhealthy. It's actually life-threatening if you have, you know, ar- arteriosclerosis or atherosclerosis. Why do, we, why do we put up with a sclerotic money circulatory system? It makes no sense. No, and there's more sclerotic activity than real circulation at this point. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, the, 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 the premiums that are charged by these various privately offered payment platforms. Another thing, by the way, Doug, I think you and Ron probably already knew this, but just in, just in case, you know, all these new startups that we hear about every day, it's amazing how many of them are payment platform startups. And you think, well, now, why do you need that many payment platform startups. Why do you need that many payment platforms? Well, it can only be because those who offer them can extract rents from people who use them. And, you know, there's one nice way to end all of that in one single stroke, and that is to have a publicly provided payment architecture, just like we have publicly provided roads and publicly provided police and fire and so forth. You'd think, but I bet there's plenty of obstacles to doing something like this. I mean, what what are the current obstacles between now and this being reality? You know, a money, when you get right down to it, is basically just that which pays within the context of a given payments architecture, right? It's that which pays, that which counts as payment within the payment system. And it follows then that if you want a truly public money or a public spirited money or a public interested money, then you need the public spirited or public interested or publicly provided payment system. And that's sort of what we're trying to do. But as you know, probably better than most, Doug, I mean, money is not something that a lot of people talk about in a daily way. It's it's kind of like, you know, St. Augustine, I think in the confessions says, you know, what is time? And he goes, you know, if I don't ask myself what time is, I seem to know very well what time is. But if I ask myself, I'm suddenly puzzled, you know, and money's sort of similar. It's so pervasive that people kind of feel like they know what it is because they handle it every day. But if they ask themselves, what is it? They sort of draw a blank. There's a kind of a mental vertigo, I think, that a lot of people experience. So one thing we're trying to do, and I think that you do really so amazingly well, which is one of the reasons we're so inspired by you is raise consciousness on the part of the broader population as to what money is. It's actually pretty homespun in a way. Again, it's something really simple. It's just that which counts as payment in a payment system. So if we stop letting private purveyors provide the payment infrastructure uh, and extract rents from us, basically, imagine every road being a toll road. That's sort of what private payment systems are, but with really high tolls. We just take that away and say, okay, we're going to have a public road system. We're going to have a public payment system, and that means we'll have a public money because money just is what pays on a payment system. Right. And they're really, right now, people are pretty much being bribed to use the private payment systems. So you get your American Express or your Visa Platinum thing, and they give you some miles or something. And they're giving you miles while the Chinese restaurant that's just barely struggling to stay alive is paying three or 4% on every transaction that you're doing with that card because you want the miles instead of just giving them money. Well, well, that's that's if you qualify and you're actually competing in the market. But there are thousands of low-income, millions of low-income unbanked community members you know, they were, that the only access to cash they have is this ridiculous proprietary lenders and cash checking facilities that are charging, uh, you know, criminal interest rates, you know, to, to give people some access to spendable cash. And that's really the problem that we're trying to fix. So then what do we do now? Those of us who are hearing this, particularly those who are in New York State or have some influence here, what do I do? Do I write to Representative Cousins? What do I do to help 
promote this? I can't just download something and start using it. Two things that come to my mind right away. One is just demanding, even in the form of a slogan, a public payment platform. Just say, we need a public Venmo. Why don't we have a public Venmo? We should just demand that. Secondly, we can indeed demand that of our legislators in particular by writing to them, by calling them, by you know adding this to people's platforms who are running for office. So we're going to have a bill number, Doug. Um, the Senate, we have a Senator Julia Salazar, who will be the main sponsor, and I'll be the main sponsor in the Assembly. So once we have those bill numbers, you know, they can take those numbers and call the, call the majority leader, call the speaker, call the governor, say, let's get this done. Let's be the first state in the entire country to offer uh, a, a complimentary currency to uplift our caring economy. Um, and you can stay in touch. You know, you can email me at info at ronkim.com. And I'll make sure we can plug you into that advocacy space. You know, on the one hand, when I hear about this, I think, gosh, there's so much to do. There's currency, resocialization of our communities, greenhouse gases and carbon. But then I think, well, you know, any one of those things is the entry point to fixing them all. You get people using an alternative currency and they start purchasing things locally. So now they're taxing the global environment less because they're getting things more locally. They're starting to consume less. The economic equality is going away. They're becoming re-socialized because now they're transacting with people they know rather than just being alienated by big corporations. So then the political landscape gets better. And it's like the beauty of it is when we have so much wrong, it means we've got hundreds of high leverage points to fix everything if we just you know pick one and go with it. it it really can be a kind of social lubricant or a kind of a lubricant to sort of further synergistic combining you might say of collaborative efforts on the part of multiple people in a given community all it requires is some way that the value can be given expression and in effect what we're talking about is a very simple infrastructure that just enables that to happen right i mean imagine Banking serving humans instead of humans serving banking. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for doing this and for, for coming on and telling us. I feel like we're scooping something here. That was New York Assemblyman Ron Kim and Cornell Law Professor Robert Huckett talking about creating a new public money system for New York's poor and then everyone else. I've had so many guests and features and things on today, I'm not sure we have time for the regular weekly monologue, but let me say just a few things anyway. I find myself gladly pushing through despair lately, and it's not because I'm microdosing anything. I'm, I'm still deathly afraid of so much of what's happening on the horizon, like climate, nationalism, economic inequality, topsoil erosion, runaway AI, forest fires, flooding. And I really, I don't like the way even high-quality fictional media from Game of Thrones or the Chernobyl miniseries to, to The Watchmen glorify and sensationalize this doomsday clock that people are feeling. But Everywhere I go, I'm meeting people who are convinced we can still flip the script, that it doesn't have to go there, that we're still in charge of this reality. And that, oddly enough, is why I'm finding myself drawn back to the arts, not as some retreat from nonfiction news or the reality of cable TV, but as a way to shift from a, a spectator 
to a participant, from an audience member to a performer, from an object that's being acted upon to a subject doing the acting. And I feel like art is the place to practice this, to assume a new posture, and then to see the rest of the world from this new perspective too. You know, why am I buying carrots that are lathed to look like baby carrots and sealed in a plastic bag? Who cut those carrots? Why can't I cut my own carrots? Who planted and harvested them? How does it happen and how can I participate? Who makes our money, our laws, our schools, our values? It's all open source. It always has been. And I think the widespread impatience and even the anxiety so many of us are feeling right now is just a form of readiness. It's our time. And one woman who brings this sensibility to everything she touches is the CEO of Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco, my new friend and hero, Deborah Kulinan. I came to this work, I think, in a rather unusual way. I didn't study the arts formally in university. I don't have an advanced degree. Um, I really have long believed that art and creativity are essential to any human progress. And I came to YBCA about six years ago after I was working for a very long time running a smaller organization that is called Intersection for the Arts. And during the time that I was working there, um, it, you know, when I stepped into the job, I was quite young. And my theory is that I was young enough to take a risk because it was essentially, you know, at a, a kind of near-death experience as a nonprofit arts organization. You know, in my in my what mid-late 20s at the time, I was so intrigued that an organization that had been so important to so many well-known people's careers. And, you know, I think about almost every writer that I loved had had some relationship with intersection. Um, how could how could it be that it wasn't relevant that that it was so important and yet you know people weren't there to build it forward and in my own you know my lack of experience i think turned out to be a real strength because i just didn't understand why nonprofit arts organizations didn't think about the communities around them how do you center artists and creativity as really central to a thriving neighborhood um, and how do you think about art as an important driver, if not an essential driver to lasting change. So I was already bringing this kind of sensibility to the work. And then, you know, I got, I, I, my, my uh, predecessor, Ken Foster, was encouraging me to apply for the job at Yerba Buena, which, which um, totally surprised me because it just seemed like such a different world. Um, and at first I was like, why would I want to do that? Um, but then I started having the conversation and I started to think about what would it be like if we could bring what can happen at the grassroots to a bit more scale um, and if we could enable um, a larger institution to think about itself in that way. And, you know, one of the things that I love about YBCA is that it's, it's sort of punk rock. It's like big enough to do some stuff, but it's small enough that it can be nimble. My perception of the shift over the last really five, ten years even, 
at YBCA is going from an institution that sort of brought great relevant art to people to an institution that sort of celebrated the art from people. A student at, at Queens actually did a great master's thesis on some of these galleries that are like a gallery will move into like a mission district place or some place where there's still local people who haven't been forced out by big business yet. And they'll do like gallery shows that seem to cross all the T's and dot all the I's in terms of social justice and ethnicity and this and that. But it's somebody who's not really from there. And it's as if it's ignoring the local art that's being produced and the the local arts community that still can't get in the gallery that just opened in their neighborhood. All that you said, and I love the way that you characterize it, this idea of um, moving from bringing art to people to bringing art from people. And I think that's very much what we're trying to do, which is to be a center for art and, and, you know, and dot, dot, dot. It isn't just about the presentation of art from the top down. It isn't just, and it isn't at all a place where you can be a passive witness. It needs to be a place where you can be an active participant and where your creativity and your perspective and your experience matters. When I first stepped into YBCA, you know, I had this feeling of like, this is an organization that was founded 25 years ago um, out of a really complicated set of struggles, lawsuits, you know, displacement, um, the discovery of the Ohlone people's um, original presence in the, you know, on the ground beneath our feet. And, yeah, and, it, and it came out as a kind of new entity, a new kind of, at the time, multicultural center that would, that would focus on and be, be a place for the people of San Francisco. But yet it structured itself like a tradition, a more traditional museum. It, it, it wanted to be a museum in the visual arts, uh, from the visual arts perspective. And then it, it kind of wanted to be a presenter in terms of the performing arts. It's taken this long for at least me to see that what we have to do is completely reimagine it and its structure needs to align with its vision. Right. And it's not like that's a bad thing in itself. You know, there's like, you know, a BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music, they'll bring in, you know, Peter Brook or the Irish Rep Theater. And it's a wonderful thing. But it, it's funny because when you say 25 years ago, I mean, I was there. I remember I went to Yerba Buena to be on a panel with Mark Beam, of all people, who was, you know, a, the Kaufman Foundation program guy. I'm with him and Howard Rheingold daughter and the person who invented the Palm Pilot. It was like, you know, 1995 or 94 or something. And Yerba Buena was like a side entrance in this place that hadn't yet been built right next to sort of Moscone Center. But what it was, was sort of like, okay, there's this thing that's going to happen in San Francisco now. This internet thing is coming from here and we need to have sort of a growing arts center that's going to grow up with Silicon Valley. And that's both its strength and, of course, it also ends up being its weakness because you want to get funding from these dot-com people who are millionaires and then want to see something cool that they like, you know, showing up in this space. But it pivoted before it got too entrenched in that. I think that's right. And I and I think it's, it's in this really um, unique spot because it's sort of the center. It's at the center of all that you're describing. We are not this or that. We are this and that. Right, like we are a place for convenings and gatherings. You know, Steve Jobs, when he was alive, wanted to launch every product on YBCA stage because he felt so at home in the art context. Um, 
And, and, you know, we can think about that as, oh, we're a venue and that's revenue. Or we can think about that as, oh, we are a center and those are the things that happen. And it's a center for all the people around us. Culture Bank was before your Yerba Buena career? No, actually. Um, so, so what happened was I, while I was um, at Intersection, I got engaged with the team of people that started up um, what's now Impact Hub. And I met Penelope Douglas, who is now a longtime colleague, a mentor. She happens to be an artist, but she also, if you don't know her, is a um, a real pioneer in community development investment. So she was co-founder and the real visionary force behind one of the earliest CDFIs called um, Pacific Community Ventures. Penelope and I really started working concertedly on bringing artists into the conversation around impact investment um, and into the work that SOCAP was trying to do um, and actually have had a, a, an, an incredible amount of success really kind of positioning artists and art as really essential to the whole conversation. So when I got to YBCA, I invited Penelope to come over and facilitate um, one of our fellows cohorts. They were a group of people that were looking at questions of labor and why we work. And at the same time, we had another group of people that were looking at the question, what does equity look like? At the same time that these fellows are happening and she's hanging out with the artists at YBCA, she's also doing a residency at the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank. This is, for me, what is so exciting about an art center, that it can create conditions where really different kinds of people with different perspectives can kind of gather around big questions, and sometimes something breakthrough can happen. So Culture Bank arose because of this kind of cacophony of cross-sector bizarre, you know, the bankers and the artists trying to sort some things out about work and about equity. And it was really a response to the, you know, the fact that I think we all know that the community development investment that we have been doing is essentially not working. Um, and the wealth gap, as we know, continues to widen. And yet we also know that there are, is this incredibly um, talented but underutilized ecosystem of artists who are working at the ground level, transforming things like one person, one block, one classroom, one neighborhood at a time. You know, we think that those artists are actually essential early stage investors and communities. And if we understood what they were doing and we understood their ability to really see and really lift what already exists, what is already beautiful and valuable in a community, that's the thing that you invest in is that beauty. And where does that money come from? It's called, I know it's called a collaborative investment model and it uses community assets instead of just like one rich guy. We all agree that impact investment needs to be rethought because until we move to a much longer tail, much more collective, much more shared vision of what value even is, um, it's still going to be about the guy with the money. And um, it really needs to be about a a society that values so many things. And so our vision, um, and we haven't put it into practice yet, but we're pretty close to doing it in a couple of places is that we create a sort of commons approach. We fuel our initial investments with philanthropic um, dollars, but we're pooling different assets and your return, we like to say, instead of instead of return on investment, ripples, ripples of investment. So really looking at short, medium, and long-term outcomes and how we might actually be able to energize or, or contribute to what is getting really exciting in terms of thinking around a world that doesn't just it isn't just thinking that money is the only thing that matters. 
you know, I've spent the last 10 or 20 years doing good kind of social justice oriented nonfiction, real research, teaching in a public college and all that. And so much of me wants to go and do some art, you know, do some theater projects again and do some experimental video. You know, I've got, you know, six or seven projects just sitting a sort of back burnery. And I almost feel guilty to want to go do them as if they're indirect. In other words, how could I go do a theater project while there's people starving or while the climate is falling apart? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It feels like a luxury or something. And yet, it's the breakthrough that we need, right? Like we, we don't have time. We're not thinking big enough. It's really difficult for us to dream a different future. I mean, just, just, reflecting on on the recent loss of Toni Morrison and I won't get her quote right but you know she says before you lead you know and before you even think take a minute to dream and you know again the it's not a direct quote but but that's that's what drives me is the idea that we have the only thing that we can do is imagine a better future um if we can't imagine it it's really difficult to get to it and I think the, that it's almost a luxury. It's almost it almost correlates with with the wealth gap that those who can really comprehend the past, sit in the present, and imagine a future are very few. Right, and they're imagining a pretty friggin' dark future and how to insulate themselves from the rest of us. Exactly, and that to me is like that's deep. Like, what are we talking about if you know the majority of people in this country are focused on paying a bill or getting their kid to school or just making sure there's food on the table and there is no ability to imagine a future, therefore it's not really theirs to have. And so if we don't think that art and creativity and imagination are essential, um, I think it's a huge problem. I think what we have to do though is is think of those things not as isolated also and marginalized and or for the few, um, I think we have to think of art and creativity and imagination as part of a system, right? Like if you map it out, we start with imagination. Together, we think of the future. We inspire one another. We connect into other systems. And I think it starts with art. I mean, it's funny. All of the science fiction and uh, speculative fiction out there seems so dark. I was raised in a, with Star Trek and my daughter's raised with Walking Dead and Hunger Games, you know? So if that's where people are imagining, then it's like, I'm really interested to say, okay, well, what would it be like? What kind of futures, even realistic futures, can we imagine through art and theater and film that give us a different sort of North Star to reach towards? You know, and I was even thinking of, you know, I think a lot about Brett because he was kind of my guy. I just liked that he would do art, but make sure everybody knows you're watching a play. Don't forget. (laughs) Keep them aware, not to let them fall into the romance of it. But in a way to say, well, what would a future look like where we all use less and consume less and without it looking like denial? In other words, could we paint positive kind of light technology, pro-global climate futures that show how people would live in a way that's in balance with nature? What would that even look like? You know, and I feel like an artist might be able to picture some of that a little bit more easily than, you know, the the scenario planner at the Pentagon. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. And then the scenario planner at the Pentagon 
needs to be able to engage with that creativity. And it is in that unique ability to paint a picture that allows us to see what the consequences might be. What if we could figure out a way to make those experiences less presentational and more in practice, in process, more dynamic? I mean, the theater project I'm just starting on now is one where there's no main stage production. You know, I don't want to write a play and find some theater in New York and do the authoritative production of it. What I'm doing instead, I'm writing these scenes that are open to interpretation. Whatever small community local group is doing it is going to interpret these scenes in whatever context that they want. I'm seeing it as a version of kind of the old WPA leftist theater, except pushed so far that it's the communities doing the work are then having an arts-based conversation about power relationships and economics and all those issues, except through the act of doing theater rather than the act of coming to see some play in a chair. I mean, to me, the, the concept of enabling a public to do the, the theater or do the art is profound. Uh, and again, I'm thinking about here in San Francisco and my feelings on those days when I'm less positive that it's, it's so hard here. It's so hard. And, and we all know it's, it's very expensive. We all know that there are some you know, really, really difficult issues that we're dealing with in terms of our homeless population, you know, so many people living without homes. Um, but for me, the one of the things that has been harder and harder to navigate is the way that that kind of deep and visible inequity, um, it, it gets so normalized, but really then how we how we act on it as a, as a culture here is to divide, you know, create big dividing lines. It's a, it's hard to be we in San Francisco. You know, you're either us or you're them. And I, I think a lot about how impossible it is to do anything if we're not we. And of course, we're feeling that as a country in deep and devastating ways. And so the idea of what you're describing to create we through the act of making and doing together and to be a part of a narrative that is potentially not yours, but that can help you move yours forward is, I think, you know, a really important act. I know. And it's odd because as someone who was around in the early days of San Francisco interactivity with the, the well and bulletin boards and, you know, the, the very early Apple days, we thought that the digital media environment would engender almost automatically more true interaction of that sort, you know, but it seems to have somehow done the opposite so far. Yeah. And, and I wonder what we might be able to learn from that. What would the path have been for us to achieve what you described? Because it, it was possible, right? And, and it's, that, it's that loss of possibility that I think we really need to grapple with. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it has to do with space. You know, people ended up doing their internet activity alone on personal computers in their homes. Most of us didn't think we were going to ever afford a computer, that you would go to a library or a, a cyber cafe, you know, and that's where you would go online. And it would be a sort of intrinsically social public experience, not a private one. And that to me, like, like as you were saying that, I was, I was picturing 
the guys in garages working together that actually made all these, you know, that, that, that it was about collaboration and it was about like, we can do something that's almost unimaginable. That is true. It was. It was groups of hackers in garages ordering pizza and staying up all night together. And I think that that's, I mean, that to me is what becomes really exciting about what might happen at a place like YBCA or what might happen in you know work that I'm seeing through my um, residency in the Kaufman at the Kaufman Foundation in Kansas City, this possibility of new laboratory spaces, new ways of thinking about how we learn throughout our lifetimes together, new ways of thinking about even systems. Like you know here in the Bay Area, we're thinking a lot about systems of support for artists because it's really supposed to be about the art and the artists and that kind of collaboration you're talking about. And instead, it's about the structure. It's about keeping the institutions afloat. And that happens with almost any institution. You know, it gets started for these great reasons. I mean, I look at even, you know, the great religions that way. And then they become more interested in preserving themselves than whatever their original mandate was. You know, it's hard. I mean, the work at YBCA has been really hard. I'm definitely inspired, um, inspired people to ask questions about, you know, what we're doing at YBCA. And I, I often hear this sort of like, is is this about artists? Is, you know, is this an art center or is this a community center? And I, and I, I understand all that tension. I understand that we're growing up and evolving out of a structure that existed in a certain way that elevated a certain set of people um, and certain traditions. Um, but it, but I think for my colleagues across the country who are running organizations, it's so important to think about the organization's public mandate, its obligation to be um, relevant and to be utilizing its creative resources for the common good. And it can't just be about, a, you know, an, an internal need to survive. And what does a common good look like at Yerba Buena? I mean, is it busloads of school children coming in? Is it free access on Thursday nights? I mean, how do you bring the people from the community in rather than just people that may look like me? It's a big question. And, and for me, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty radical transition. So it's not just about like a free program or an outreach program. It's about fundamental institutional change where we think about how we build curatorial and program structures that are inclusive, that are not top down, that are not driven by one or two or three people and their life experiences. We're opening our doors in all kinds of ways. Uh, we are looking at deepening relationships with artists who we hope will become part of the family, who will really help us on a day-to-day -day think about ourselves as an institution and how are we a creative home for the people around us. We've done a lot of experimentation in the past year. We have an exhibition right now that came to me because I, I have a colleague, a longtime friend and colleague. Uh, Rudy Corpus, who runs an organization south of Market here in San Francisco called United Players, and you know they're a youth development, youth leadership organization. Their motto is "It takes the hood to save the hood," and they're just like a righteous organization doing incredible work. So Rudy calls me, I'm gonna pick up the phone, and he's like, "I've got an exhibition idea," and I'm like, "Okay, right." And that's not usual. Usually, that would be through a curator. It would probably not fly because these are community-based organizations without experience in the arts, particularly in a formal art setting like YBCA. Um, but the exhibition was in collaboration um, with an organization called the Robbie Pobletti Foundation, founded by an extraordinary human being named Patty Pobletti, who lost her son Robbie to gun violence. And she um, 
used all that pain and um, all of her you know, strength to found an organization that now works around gun buybacks, works with police departments, works across the state to get a whole, get as many guns off the streets as she can. And then she boils those things down to their essence and commissions artists to make work out of them. We put up this exhibition a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, in, in, of course, over the past several weeks, we've now experienced three mass shootings and however many more shootings. And so we, we opened our doors last night and we just invited the community to come in. We had artists facilitate a conversation about what we want to do about this and what we can do together. And, and so it's about being home. It's, it's about changing your idea of what makes an exhibition. And it's about mixing things up. Like several people um, said to me, you can't put that, you can't put those things together. You can't put an exhibition with the Boys and Girls Club in the same context as an exhibition with Suzanne Lacey. And I'm like, yes, you can. And the voltage that you get, the potential difference, the tension between the two is the most valuable part of the whole friggin' thing. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you really hit it because to be a center for art and to be a place that is and both and right, not either or you have to make room for very different experiences and different kinds of perspectives. And so we've, we've been really experimenting with that and really looking for um, ways to open up calls, to seek out ideas, to not just, you know, curate from the top down. The experience people have engaging with the arts, if anything, it's really just setting the stage or creating the environment for then a different kind of conversation to happen. You know what I mean? So if they were in there experiencing possibility, experiencing, if not even optimism, but just experiencing an imaginative capability that they don't experience in real life or normally, then we're going to have a conversation about gun violence in the space where we've experienced possibility in a very different way, we're going to now have a different kind of conversation that would have been possible otherwise. Even if the sole benefit of the art was that alone, that allowed now the community, because they've experienced this art together in this space, now they can have a different conversation in this space than they could have had before. That's enough to have lived for. Yeah. And I I absolutely know what you mean. And I think that the one thing that I would add to it is that we also have the ability to gather really different kinds of people. Everybody's valuable. And like the most exciting room to be in is one where you collide with people that you just otherwise wouldn't collide with. And I want you to walk away from YBCA saying like, my mind was blown. Like I met, I met someone I really don't think I would have ever been able to talk to. And then your supporters, I mean, they're not supporting art as this thing. Oh, we supported the creation of this canvas or this big piece of clay. You know, we're supporting an activity. You know, it's art as verb rather than art as a, as a noun. And that's more human too, isn't it? I mean, that's quite quite team human-esque. So thank you. Thanks so much for what you do. And thanks for being oh, on Oh, thank team you human. for having me. I'm so glad to connect with you. You're listening to Team Human. Our guest today, CEO of the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, Deborah Kulinan. You can find out more about Deborah and the center at ybca.org. Or you can find out more about Deborah and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm. 
Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College. Thanks to Fugazi for our opening music, Mondo Vanilli for our interlude, Mike Watt for the closing music, and Team Human listener Adam Amoroso for our brand new Real People Doing Real Things theme song. Our producer is Joshua Chapdelin, our community manager is Michael Bass, and our engineer and editor is Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.